This episode is brought to you by the Miller Review course. Enroll today at millerreview.org. This course is the epitome of a preparation course. We only care about people doing well and passing and being good surgeons. When I spoke at other courses, the students asked for me to create my own course, so that's what we did. Welcome to the 24th annual Miller Review course, now conducted in cooperation and partnership with the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. People come from all over the world to attend this course. We're expanding, always trying to get better. The faculty feel like it's a reward to be invited here, and they do their best to perform and to teach young individuals. And I've helped multiple people uh, pass the exam, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, one person seven times. The way that information is packaged and put together, I think really helps people learn specifically for their board exam. And, and I really do think that makes a difference. I don't think this course really has competition. That gives the best product, the best lectures, and our absolute very best to the residents and uh, folks who come to this course. Attendees get the most comprehensive review possible. They've been studying this subject for five years, and this is like a culmination of all their studying. I'm coming here because it's been highly reviewed for many years, and our residents have done well in past boards. We pretty much go as a class each year, and everyone has had a very positive experience throughout, so I'm excited to see what we call Passing the board's a big deal, and this course helps you do it. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Uh, welcome to the second prototype edition to Ortho Joe. Now we're calling it Ortho Joe because we're all about orthopedics, which is musculoskeletal medicine and surgical issues that are relevant to our practice. But Joe, it's it comes from journal, the journal, the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and Ortho Evidence. And this Ortho Joe uh, is a partnership between our two uh, publications, and it also, I think, really relates to our love of coffee. So, Mo, good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> and uh, with the first prototype, we did a sort of a special edition on how our two publications address the issue of COVID-19 and continue to address it. But now we're going to uh, do a prototype of what we consider might be a more regular presentation of Ortho Joe, and that's what is on our mind from relevant publications on our respective journals. And I'm going to start off, uh, Mo, if it's okay, uh, yeah, with sure. a couple of uh, publications um, that involve the use of antibiotic cement in arthroplasty. And I'm going to ask you uh, for some input because I think it's an interesting clinical problem. So in the sure. most recent issue of JBJS, we published uh, two uh, rather large cohort studies on this question of uh, the use of antibiotic cement uh, in arthroplasty particularly in total knee arthroplasty, which of course is the most common type of arthroplasty now in our two uh, respective countries. Uh, one comes from uh, the uh, very large uh, Kaiser Permanente total joint re replacement registry by NAMBA et al. involving some 87,000 total knee replacements. Uh, and of course, this is not a protocol driven 
registry. It is uh, simply a registry and uh, roughly two thirds of the patients uh, received antibiotic cement and a third didn't, of course, left up to the judgment of the surgeon. The second was uh, from the VA administration out of uh, UCSF, uh, Bendich et al., who used the VA population from 2007 to 2015 to look at the question of prosthetic joint infection as it relates to the use of this antibiotic-laden cement. The differences here are that in the Kaiser uh, uh, protocol, they did not mandate which type of antibiotic cement was used, whereas in the VA study, they, they mandated that palicose be used with or without uh, genomycin. Now, uh, the two studies come to quite different um, conclusions. The study out of uh, uh, the Kaiser system found that there was really no inferiority in terms of prosthetic joint infection with the use of, with, without the use of antibiotics with the possible exception of diabetic patients. And on the other hand, the VA study, which was in contrast to 87,000 patients was 16,000 patients. Uh, they conclude that the utilization of antibiotic bone cement for primary knee arthroplasty um, was associated with a lower all-cause revision rate and a lower rate of revision for prosthetic joint infection. So, you know, these manuscripts, both of them underwent extensive peer review by experts in knee arthroplasty and prosthetic joint infection, as well as our stats and methods ed editor. And how is it that these two studies can come to these different conclusions? So, you, Mo, you, you know, you and I, we're big advocates of l large trials, right? Simple clinical trials. And I, I would just like to ask your input is how can this sure. happen uh, with these two different studies? Simple, simple answer to that question would be non-randomized, period. And, uh, you know, I know that's a, I know that comes across as a bit callous in statement because the reality is, I mean, and you and I have had these discussions for decades, which is, when you, you know, there's a real value to look at large registry data, and I really believe it. I mean, I think big data is important, and you know, however you, you quantify it. But the biggest challenge in registry data, or we'll, we'll just say broadly observational data, is the greatest strength of the randomized trial, which is the R word, right? Randomization. I don't know um, why people would be that particularly, um, I guess, miffed that two large observational cohorts in which you can't really control, you can try to. Um, and I'm sure the methodology was very sound for both, but you know, the data sets are the data sets you have. Um, without that powerful, you know, balancing of prognosis, uh, which is critical, I think we're always gonna be questioning what those findings are. And I think the only way that you're gonna have to resolve this, and I hope, and, and the thing is what boggles my mind, Mark, on this, on this particular topic around total joint infection is this should have been resolved, I, I, I would have thought many, many years ago, only because to get 15, 20,000 patients would seem like, you know, like the Mount Everest of trials. But if you think about where we are now and the number of joints, and, and it is the single most important question around trying to resolve infection rates. Um, why we haven't had that study, I don't understand it. Um, but my answer to you is simple. I, I do think that observational data, it's really hard to control for confounding variables. Those variables that could be associated with an outcome that we just can't control because 
you know, surgeons are left to their best judgment interacting with patients and how they see fit. And that's not necessarily always controlled. Right. Right. So let me, let me push you a little bit more on this question before I ask you what's on your mind from ortho evidence. But mm. so we do know that over 50% of the greater than 700,000 knee replacements occurring in the United States now are, are getting antibiotic uh, cement. So it's, it's increasing. And in the VA study, they also documented that the increase went uh, from 2007 to 2015 went from 50% of patients in the VA system getting antibiotic cement to nearly 70%. So patients are getting it. So let me just ask you this. Can you, I know you're, you're a very experienced clinical trialist. Could you give uh, our listeners an idea of uh, roughly how many subjects we would need to enroll in a simple trial, just infection, no infection? Um, sure. I mean, I mean, so if you think about, let's just say for primary like, you know, so like when you're thinking about a study size, right, you know, it goes back to our first principles when you and I were even planning the uh, sort of the hip fracture trials back in the day that, that were still nowhere near the size of this study would have to be. It goes back to what we believe are the best estimates of infection rates using standard practice. And I think for total knees, one might argue it's under 2%, maybe 1% to 2%. So you can imagine that um, going from, let's just say 2%, to even 1.5% would be a, you know, it seems like it's minuscule, but it would be dramatic because of the number of joints and the devastating impact of infection. For sure, that, that, that number gets us above 10,000 and depending on how narrow we are, could be in the 15 to 20,000 patient range. Now, you could argue that that trial hasn't been conducted before, but for a simple, relatively frugal intervention, you would think that we could align around this. I think the challenge is going to be is getting um, surgeons, primarily the surgeons, to agree to use it. Because if 50 or 60% of surgeons are already using it, they may already have what happened with lock plating work, which was it's unethical to do a trial because we believe it's so important to prevent infection. I do not want to risk my patient not having every possible advantage, even though we can't demonstrate definitively there's an advantage. That's going to be the mechanics of it, I think. Right. But yeah, well, 15, 20,000 patients of that. Yeah. Well, it's always surgeon equipoise. You know, we, we surgeons yeah. are built. We, we have the answer. Uh, and to admit that we really don't know the answer but on a scientific basis is difficult for we surgeons. But hopefully yeah. this discussion might just stimulate somebody out there in the arthroplasty world to take this uh, question on. So oh, what's, sure. what's, what's on your mind from the ortho evidence side? Sure. So, I mean, we've been doing these, um, well, and actually it's, it's a little related to joints, um, but it's, it's, hip, it's hip replacement and specific approaches to hip replacement. The good old fashioned comparison between posterior lateral and the shiny, you know, anterior, direct anterior approach. And, and I'll tell you at ortho evidence, what we did is, um, you know, we sometimes get um, comments and comments come in and they ask about, you know, big question. So there was a, a comment based on a on a study that we got. And I'll read the comment to you because it gives you the context of why we did what we call this OE original on approaches to hip replacement. And I'll give you kind of the pricey of what we found. And I'm curious what your take is. But there was a uh, a surgeon in Canada who wrote to us and said, listen, I do all three approaches with, with the lateral almost completely phased out in my practice. I was a huge proponent of this direct anterior approach for four or five years and have now transitioned from the 
direct anterior to the posterior approach as my workhorse. My question is, are there any differences that are really that significant? And I'm wondering if you might be able to shed light. So that was the, the rationale for this. What we did, it was called an OI original. We did, we did our own internal network meta-analysis um, of this topic. And just a reminder to those who might be listening in, and you know, I'm sure most of us are aware of what a meta-analysis is. The network meta-analysis, Mark, just allows us to compare three different um, approaches the anterior-based, lateral-based, and posterior-based approaches, even if they haven't been directly compared against each other using these new tools, which is called a network, so for, for indirect comparisons. So we did this, and mostly it is because there's been actually surprisingly a lot of uh, randomized trials that have come out since 2018 um, that have been focusing on this particular issue. So there's about seven, seven or eight new trials. We said we go ahead and do it. There was a recent network meta-analysis on this in 2020, so we went ahead and um, use that for safety data, but here's the bottom line. Um, and again, this is still based on small, um, you know, on small trials. But it said, in this case, um, the direct anterior approach, right? So the direct anterior approach showed the highest likelihood of functional improvement and pain reduction in patients receiving total hip arthroplasty. Now, this this improvement that was happening, we can argue whether it's clinically important and significant, but happened in that first year. So when, when we got beyond a year, all the other approaches seemed to be much better, but there seemed to be this earlier return to function with this direct anterior approach. Downside, complication rates with the direct anterior approach are pretty significant. So this is the standard tray of blood loss, duration of surgery, potential nerve palsy, and even fractures being those risks. The proponents of the direct anterior approach who write on that topic tell us pretty clearly, it's all learning curve. If right. you learn to do the procedure and you don't, you do a few of these. This is not the approach for you for the casual, uh, you know, hip hip replacement in which you're going to do it. You should be doing it as a clear pathway and, and getting the learning curve. We tried to figure out what that learning curve would be in this procedure, and it, it wasn't clear. But that's basically sort of the sort of what we what we promoted. And I guess you always, as these things do, it leaves you with more questions than answers. And so. The argument always is for those who are proponents of a direct anterior surgical approach to hip replacement and who are really believing it, right? They're right. But those who actually are worried about it, they're not wrong either. So, you know, it's the question of how you look at it. And I guess, you know, from your own experience, what do we need to do? I mean, like, I mean, at OE, I feel like we're never giving them the answer they want, but we're giving them what we think is going to be a balanced approach um, to going forward. Now, we did have people respond to us um, and they said, hey, this is kind of, yeah, you know, it's kind of what, uh, the, way, the way you framed it always kind of what we think about it. Big learning curve. Um, yes, you can get um, an improvement. That improvement is early, but in the long term, there's no difference and the risk is high. That's basically kind of the gist of that, uh, of that approach. I'm wondering what your take on that would be. Uh, but I, uh, but the risk does go down as the learning curve is it levels out. Uh, and yes. in the, the publications that we have uh, admittedly smaller trials, it seems like that learning curve is somewhere between 50 and 100 procedures. And okay. most, most experts recommend that you train with somebody who is really an expert at it before attempting this because of the complications of of nerve injury and of fracturing the femur uh, and inadequate exposure of the acetabulum. So, and yeah, why don't we ever come up with the right answer? You know, I, I think it's because that's the scientific method. You know, we continue to evaluate a question 
from different angles using the best evidence possible and let the evidence move the field. So Absolutely. I, don't, yeah. I don't think the answer will ever be stable for any question we're, we're asking. Do you? No, I don't. And I'll tell you on, on, that, on an anecdote, you may recall this, but in 2003, I was chatting with you saying, hey, listen, I think I'm going to go see if I can spend three to six months with Joel Matta. And you, know, you had said, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. You should, you should get experience and watch. And I was going there to um, get insight on acetabular fractures. Lo and behold, he spent a ton of time doing the direct anterior approach. And I went in there, you know, not really knowing much about it and watching people, you know, 10 to 14 days golfing and, you know, jumping up and down. And I'm, and he was particularly like, it was his number one investment to say, like, look at this, like, you know, what do you think? And I would say, yeah, it sounds amazing. What is this? What are you doing? And it was at that time where I could see him, you know, he had just gone, not just, but he was bringing back that technique. And I guess it gets back to the follow-up, right? Which is the, which is the issue. You know, you've had tons and tons of trainees come and visit you and, and had fellows. He's had many. When you see someone that's just so good at something, uh, you know, and an expert, it almost looks like it's all, oh, this is easy. I, I can do this. You go and you see it. And I would see surgeons after surgeons visiting him um, and seeing it and watching someone who's, you know, who, who is sort of the innovator side of it, um, you know, presenting you this beautiful approach. I think what happens is there's many people who think I can visit, see it, and then go back and suddenly I'm going to do it. And they have a big complication, right? And they never get, they never see or have that feeling that they saw when they went to see it. And I think that's going to be the big challenge is getting over that early, as you said, between 20 and 100 cases. And I would actually argue in some cases, it's probably more than that, right. um, you know, depending on the individual. Uh, the story you tell is very much like my golf game. You know, I can watch uh, Tiger Woods hit a golf ball and then go out and try it, and the results are distinctly different. So one thing you mentioned kind of as a final comment is that you've had people contacting you at OE uh, about your, your, your study, which you put up, your OA original. Yeah. And we'd like to encourage the listeners out there to contact us if they've got some uh, information uh, that they would like us to know about these two questions. And what we'll do is we'll have a mailbag at the start of the next uh, session of Ortho Joe. And if there's something that really contributes to this discussion we felt today, we'll, we'll read it and have a, another discussion to, to perhaps add to that topic. So we hope that you enjoy this uh, version, the second version of uh, Ortho Joe. And uh, hopefully by the next time we'll have our logo coffee cups to, to uh, enjoy the morning. So cheers, Mo. Cheers.